Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen a vision in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who were called, uh, who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was the disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. 
And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Father, we thank you for this, not only this text of scripture, but this incredible event, how it, it, it changed, in a sense, the course of church history. And we, we thank you that, that just as you saved Saul in those days, you can save men who are radically opposed to you in our own day. And so we simply ask that we might see the gospel and rejoice in it, and that any who have not trusted in you may do as Saul did, uh, placing their trust in you. Be with Tom as he preaches this great text. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Well, I've been, I've been told that this passage preaches itself, so I'll do my best not to mess it up. Uh, the event of course, that Luke records in this passage is one of the most well-known in the New Testament. Saul's encounter with the resurrected Jesus and the amazing, miraculous transformation that resulted in Saul's heart through that encounter. But this passage is much more than, than one man's uh, conver amazing conversion story. The same man, Saul of Tarsus, is the man that we know best as the Apostle Paul. And uh, it was through this man that, that God chose, that Jesus chose to spread the gospel most wonderfully across all of the Gentile cities in the Roman Empire. And I'm just going to put up a map here. I know it's kind of hard to, to see the small print, but Jerusalem's way down here. Saul planted churches all the way up here in Asia Minor and then came across the Aegean, Aegean Sea into Macedonia, planted churches here, also down into Greece, Corinth. And then after being arrested, after coming back to Jerusalem and being arrested, he ended up going all the way to Italy, to Rome, to the very capital of the Roman Empire. And there were, there were churches that were either planted through Saul or nurtured through Saul in all of these regions. Uh, Saul is also... the. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who, who we, we know Saul as mostly, um, he is also the, the second most prolific writer of New Testament books after Luke. Uh, Luke is, more, more of Scripture was written by Luke, if you count the whole verses and words, uh, than by Paul, but, but Paul was second. So the, uh, what God did through this man is just extraordinary. Um, and the way that Jesus turned Paul from militant enemy to mightily used ambassador is a beautiful template for what Jesus does in every man, woman, and child who comes to faith in him, in Jesus. When we compare Saul's experience here in the first part of the chapter with what Paul later wrote in his epistles about the salvation of every person who has been chosen of God, 
we discover that Paul's conversion story is at its very core, every believer's conversion story. And that will become clearer as we proceed. The first thing I want to do this morning is walk, walk again through the events of this chapter. First, the setup, and I'm going to use a little, a little uh, wrestling terminology, not that I'm a wrestler, but I'm too gangly to be a wrestler, but uh, wrestling jiu-jitsu, it fits in both. The setup and takedown. First, the setup, and that's Saul's murderous mission. Verse 1 says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest in Jerusalem, and he asked for letters from him to go to the synagogues of Damascus. Damascus is way up here in the region of Syria, okay, north of Palestine. He asked for letters to go to the synagogues, the Jewish synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, in other words, any followers of Jesus, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now later in Acts 22, after Paul is arrested for preaching Jesus in Jerusalem, he tells the Jewish, his Jewish accusers that before he met the resurrected Jesus, in other words, way back in the events that we see here in chapter 9, he, quote, persecuted this way to the death. His personal and zealous goal was the utter destruction of the church of Jesus Christ. This was not a dispassionate pursuit on Paul's part. In Acts 26, when Paul presents his defense before King Agrippa, he says that as he carried out his militant campaign against Christians from Jerusalem into foreign cities like Damascus, that was the last of the foreign cities that were outside Palestine, he was, quote, furiously enraged at everyone who believed in Jesus. Furiously enraged. This was an obsession for this man. He was as militant an enemy of the gospel and of the person of Jesus Christ and of the people of Jesus Christ as has ever existed on this earth. And his intention was murderous by his own declaration. But that campaign of vicious anger against Christ and his people ended with the events that we find in today's passage. As Saul headed from Jerusalem to Damascus, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus. That's the setup. Here's the takedown, verses 3 through 9. And in this takedown, the loser ends up winning too. When Saul approached his destination at Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. In Acts 22, we learn that that happened around noontime when the sun was at its peak. That meant that the light had to be pretty bright, right? So in Acts 26, before King Agrippa, Paul says the light, that light was brighter than the sun, shining all around me and around those who were journeying with me. That's 26.13. Jesus blinded Saul, and Saul fell to the ground. He blinded Saul so that he would finally see. Saul was blind for three days, during which this text tells us he neither ate nor drank. And just a few verses later, it tells us that, that he spent that time praying. Beloved, Saul was fasting and praying after Jesus struck him blind. 
This event had, had shaken Saul to his core and brought him to his knees before the living God. Again, later in his testimony before King Agrippa in chapter 26, Paul gives us more detail of the instruction, the instruction that he received from Jesus after being blinded by him and falling to the ground. 26.16, But arise and stand on your feet, Jesus said to him. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. In other words, Jesus was promising him more appearances, more tutorials, okay, from, the, from Jesus himself. Delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, sent to Jews and Gentiles, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. From darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified, made holy by faith in me. Mm. Paul's mission was to go to Jews and Gentiles and to share with them the truth that had opened his eyes so that their eyes would be open and they would go out of the dominion of Satan into the, into the domain of Christ and they would go from darkness to light, they would receive forgiveness of their sins, and they would have an inheritance together with the people of Christ, which means eternal life with God in the place he has prepared for his people. That's Christ's own purpose statement to Saul for what was happening to him on this day recorded in Acts 9. The men who accompanied Saul led their blinded master by the hand the short distance that remained into the city of Damascus, because all this happened just as Saul was approaching that city. Okay, that's the setup and the takedown. And now there's a handoff. In verses 10 to 16, Jesus makes a handoff to a godly Jewish believer who lives in Damascus, a man named Ananias. Jesus appears to Ananias in a vision, and he instructs him to go to a certain house, on the street called Straight, where he will find Saul praying. Saul was already anticipating Ananias' arrival at that house because Jesus already told Saul to expect him by name. Jesus commands Ananias to lay hands on Saul so that he might regain his sight. <laughs> now, at first, Ananias resists this little assignment. <laughs> And it's clear from his words that the Jews living in Damascus, including the Jewish Christians, had already been forewarned about Saul. They knew that he was coming with letters from the high priest and with the authority from the high priest to arrest anyone associated with Jesus and bring them back in bonds to Jerusalem. Jesus responded to Ananias' protest here in verses 15 and 16, and this response is just magnificent. The Lord said to Ananias, go, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now imagine for just a moment the relief and joy that Ananias felt when he heard those words. 
He was waiting for the, for the, the hammer to fall, right, when, when this man arrived in Damascus. My dear sister Sharon reminded me this week how often it is <laughs> that when it looks as if God has withdrawn his hand of protection and provision, how often it is that at that very time we're about to see the display of God's mighty power and sovereignty most directly. Ananias got to have a front row seat to that display. The last part of what Jesus said to Ananias here is, is especially striking to me. It, I mentioned job searches last week. If you were doing a job search and you uh, came across a job description, and one of the paragraphs in that job description was the suffering clause, how much further would you look? You know, here's what you will be required to suffer for your boss. In the last chapter of John's Gospel, the resurrected Jesus told the apostle Peter that he would be martyred for Jesus' sake, and Peter very clearly got the message in that passage. Now, Jesus tells Ananias that he, Jesus, is going to show Saul how much he must suffer for Christ's namesake. Beloved, it is impossible to read the biblical accounts of God's most powerfully used agents in either testament without recognizing that usefulness for God requires suffering for a time. And then only after our participation in the suffering of Jesus will we get to share in the glory of Jesus. And as I we talk about often in our Thursday night study, when did Jesus get to enter back into his glory? After he drew his last breath in that mortal body. Same is true for you and me. That's when the glory comes, okay? Until then, Romans 8, 16 to 18 says, for his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Jesus, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Friends, that's the normal Christian life. All right, verse 17 to 19, we find the equipping. Ananias does exactly as Jesus had commanded him to do. He goes to the house where he was supposed to meet Saul, and he finds him there. And after laying his hands on Saul and undoubtedly praying for him to receive all that Jesus promised, Ananias tells Saul that Jesus sent him so that Saul would, quote, regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that phrase several times in this book already. What does it mean when somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit? It means that God takes control, okay? It's not, it's not a, he doesn't turn him into a robot, but he's, he's, driving, he's driving the ship, okay? He's doing the steering. He is taking control and he's putting that person to use according to his purposes and according to his greatness. Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, he received the enablement to keep his commission from Jesus. He, the Holy Spirit, is that enablement, just as he is for every believer. The indwelling Holy Spirit is our enablement for everything that God requires of us. Saul regains his sight, now seeing as he has never seen before. He arises 
And in a declaration of what God has already done, he is immediately baptized. We've said that baptism is the symbol of the Spirit received, uh, among other things. After three days of no food or drink, Saul takes his first meal as a child of the king. After the equipping comes the usefulness, the proclamation in verses 20 and 22. We learn that Saul wasted no time at all getting on with his Christ-ordained assignment. Immediately, it says, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues of Damascus, saying he is the Son of God. Now, just consider the beautiful irony here. He was headed to those synagogues with a letter to arrest Christians, and now he's going into those synagogues proclaiming Jesus. Verse 22 says, Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this is the Christ. This Jesus is the Christ. Now, please don't miss that word, proving. Proving what? That Jesus is the long-promised Christ. I sincerely hope that we're starting to see a pattern here by this point in the book of Acts with regard to the content of the message that Christ's ambassadors all preached in this book thus far. What is it that Peter and Stephen and Philip and now Saul all focused on most intensively as they preach Jesus to lost men and women and children. It is that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ promised through the Old Testament prophets. The Christ. It is exceedingly, exceedingly important that we understand what those words mean. In Acts chapter 17 later, Luke tells us, that, and this is decades later, when this same Saul of Tar Tarsus, now known as Paul the Apostle of Jesus, went into each city throughout the Roman Empire, and this, this was happening from the, as soon as we see, as soon as Saul started, but it kept happening throughout his ministry. Every time he went into a city, the first place he went in each city was the synagogue of the Jews. And here's what happened in each of those synagogues, Acts 17, 2-3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, to the Jews, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Which Scriptures? The Old Testament. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The words had to mean that's what the Scriptures required. And saying... This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is that Christ. Beloved, the message that was proclaimed by Peter and John and Stephen and Philip and Paul is that Jesus, the carpenter's son from Nazareth, is the long-promised Messiah. The same Messiah in the line of David whom all of the Old Testament prophets had foretold ever since Moses. This is God's great apologetic for the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of arguments that you can make, a lot of evidences that you can bring to bear. This is God's greatest apologetic, and that means proof or answer, to defend, to make the case 
for the legitimacy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled the prophets. And bound together with the proof of his fulfillment of numerous prophecies, I've heard numbers like a hundred prophecies, up to 300 prophecies fulfilled during his first coming. Bound together with that is the proof of Jesus' resurrection appearances. We saw in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that Jesus presented himself alive by many, or Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus presented himself alive by many compelling proofs. Many compelling proofs. That word means what it sounds like. Proofs. Appearing to the disciples over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. See, after being crucified and resurrected, just as the prophet said would happen, Jesus then presented himself alive, proving, proving that he is who the prophet said that he was. And then he ascended, as they watched, he ascended back into his glory at his Father's right hand. Brothers and sisters, you and I must never be timid about commanding lost people to believe in Jesus. It is a command. And we must never present that command as if it somehow violates reason. I know that what frustrates me is of no consequence, but this, it frustrates me more than I can put words to when I, hear, when I hear Christians raised up in Bible teaching churches act as if it is unreasonable to believe in Jesus, as if it is a blind leap. It's not blind and it's not a leap. Believing in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one and only Savior of sinners is the single most reasonable thing you or any other human being will ever do. The fact that most of humanity will not believe the proof that God has abundantly provided does not in any way mean that it isn't proof. It means that sinners are blind to the truth. We have that testimony throughout both testaments of Scripture. Beloved, our gospel must be unbreakably connected to the witness of the Old Testament prophets through God's Messiah, about God's Messiah, Christ Jesus. If it isn't, it's only part of the gospel we've been commissioned to preach. Look at your message and spend some time thinking about whether that's part of it. If it isn't, Read these passages, not just these, but all. Read 1 Corinthians 15. According to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, our gospel is according to the Old Testament. And when we don't say that, we are robbing ourselves, we are robbing our gospel of God's greatest proof that that gospel is to be believed. All right, and I've said there, verses 23 to 30, we get to see the opposition that is instantly raised up against Saul. Again, you could cut the irony here with a knife. It didn't take any time at all for this young man who had so recently been driven by a murderous hatred of Christians to become the target of Jews who now had a murderous hatred for him. It was Saul they wanted dead. Some of the Jews in Damascus plotted to kill him. They knew that 
he'd be easier to kill when he was traveling, headed out of the city back toward Jerusalem. So they, they set up 24-7 surveillance at the gates of the city of Damascus, and they watched, waiting for him to leave. His disciples learned of the plot, and they lowered Saul in a basket through a hole in the wall. And then he made his way to Jerusalem. Now, it's worth noting here that there will be times when a believer must retreat in order to preach the gospel another day. You and I must never second-guess missionaries and gospel workers in any context when they take measured steps to protect themselves and the people to whom they minister. It's not about clocking out and hiding. It's about preaching another day. Saul walked back to Jerusalem, but his reception by the disciples of Jesus was expectedly less than warm. <laughs> Last time they saw him, what was he doing? Right? They were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. In verse 27, the same Barnabas who was commended in chapter 4 as an example of wonderful godly generosity toward the saints now steps in to advocate for Paul with the apostles at Jerusalem. And once that happened, from that point forward, Saul was with the apostles moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of Jesus. But it didn't take long before some of the Jews in Jerusalem began trying to put him to death. Jesus was continuing to show Saul what he must suffer the name of Christ. It started right from the opening gate. Persecution started as soon as Saul started being useful. That'll happen to you too. Verse 31, we get another of Luke's wonderful progress reports on the, the advancement of, of the church of Jesus Christ. He says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, that's all of the region of Palestine, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, I want to come back to what I said in the intro, and that is I am convinced that Saul's conversion story is actually every believer's conversion story. I know, of course, that there are as many accounts of how God brought different Christians uh, to faith as there are different Christians, right? But when you strip every one of those stories down to the core, to the essential event that happened by the working of God, every one of those conversion stories looks like Saul's. As I read excerpts, and I'm going to put them up on the screen as well, from three passages that Paul wrote later, Ephesians 2, Titus 3, and Romans 5, I'm going to ask you as you read these to ponder how each of these declarations of Paul matches up with his own conversion experience that Luke sets before us here in Acts 9. And before I read them, I'll point out that's not because... Paul based his gospel on his experience. It's because Paul's experience is the very essence of what it means to be converted, to become a believer in Jesus. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead. <laughs> you were dead. That was discussed this morning. My brother Mario made that point very, very well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then listen to verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. We've talked again about this in, on Thursday nights a number of times. In those first seven verses, do you realize that neither faith nor works is mentioned? The active, the only active entity in that passage is the grace of God until you get to verse 8. And in that passage, Paul takes us all the way from being lost and dead in our sin, children of wrath, followers of Satan, to being made alive, raised up with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places where he will spend the rest of eternity showering the surpassing riches of his kindness on us. And he hasn't even mentioned faith or works. You know why? That's because we're saved by grace. It's a gift. It is all the work of God, just as it was with Paul. Then in verse 8, and 9, 8 through 10, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. There's the mechanism, right? And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, Titus 3 Verses, sorry, I didn't advance that. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior." So that being justified by his grace, <laughs> we would be made heirs according to the hope, the certainty of eternal life. And then he says, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Finally, in a shorter passage, Romans 5, 8 through 11 but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, now received the reconciliation. Do you see how closely each of these declarations mirrors what happened to Saul? He started out lost, dead, sinner, enemy of God, militant enemy, and he did absolutely nothing. And God saved him. God applied the blood of Jesus Christ to him purely by his grace. And as Mario said, that was decreed before the foundations of the earth. That does not mean that Paul based his teaching on his experience. It means Paul's experience is a template for us of how this works. And that's why he keeps presenting it that way over and over. Every person's salvation story is about God raising the dead. And dead people, beloved, dead people have nothing to offer. Every person's salvation story is about an enemy of God being made a child of God and a bearer of Christ's name. And the one and only cause of that miraculous and absolute transformation is the grace of God. We are saved by grace. Even if you got saved as a young child before you had opportunity to fully display the wretchedness of your own heart at the level that some of us older converts managed to do, the painful truth is that even before you could speak, that bundle of joy that your mother held in her arms was a bundle of selfishness born into the sin of Adam and wired to violate the character of God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and he didn't have any trouble finding, finding them. Spiritually dead sinners and enemies of God. Every human being is in that category until Jesus saves him or her. All right. There's one more thing that I pray we won't miss from this passage. It has everything to do with what our proclamation uh, is supposed to proclaim. And it follows of necessity from everything that we've already seen in these, not just here, but in the preceding chapters of Acts. Starting immediately after his conversion, what was it that Saul preached in Damascus and then in Jerusalem? Well, verse 20 says he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Verse 22 says, confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus, he was confounding them by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. Saul's proclamation as he carries out his commission to speak in the name of Jesus is all about who Jesus is. Is that what your gospel is about? Or is your gospel mostly about what Jesus did for us? We've already noted that this is the same thing that Peter proclaimed, it's the same thing that Stephen proclaimed, it's the same thing that Philip proclaimed. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John the Apostle gave us his purpose statement for including what he included in his gospel account of the life of Jesus. He said, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What must you believe in order to have eternal life? You must believe who Jesus is. There are two parts to that proclamation. Who Jesus is, and then what happens to you when you believe who Jesus is. You have life in his name. Now let me, I'm going to end right here, but let me pose this question for you and just ask you to consider it as you go from here this morning. Is it possible that we tend to do a really, really good job with the second part of that proclamation, but not so good a job at the first part? Friends, in Acts, the first part is undeniably primary. Is it possible that our gospel is too much about us and too little about him? That it focuses so much on what Jesus did for us at the cross that it ends up saying too little about who he is. Now, please hear this next part. I am not suggesting in any way that Christ's atoning death and resurrection, that what Christ's atoning death and resurrection secured for us, for every person who trusts in him, is anything less than indispensable to our gospel proclamation. The free and undeserved gift of forgiveness from sin and eternal life with God is all over the New Testament, and it is essential to our gospel proclamation. But shouldn't our gospel look like the gospel preached by Peter and Stephen and Philip and Saul? Maybe if it did, we wouldn't see so many who profess faith in Jesus end up perplexed and despairing when their lives here don't go the way they think that they should. That touches home very personally for me. And I won't say more, but those of you who know me know what I'm talking about. I thought I knew what my children believed. Perhaps if our message was as focused, was at least as focused on the worthiness of our Savior as it is on the benefits of his salvation, fewer believers would be sidelined when their participation in his suffering, the same suffering that he promised to Saul and that he promises to every believer, becomes their experience. We are servants of the crucified, risen, ascended, and glorified Son of the living God the King of kings and Lord of lords and the Savior of mankind, the only one. We are the children of the one that God has been talking about ever since God started talking to human beings. And we're supposed to tell people that. Jesus is more than worthy of whatever he requires of those whom he has saved to make them his own. More than worthy. Let's talk about his worthiness. Let's talk about who he is. Let's please make sure that that's in our message. Loving Father, thank you. Thank you for the, the amazing examples that you've handed to us in this book of Acts. It's already been a marvelous journey, and we're, we've still got a long way to go. But Father, uh, our Savior is the incomparable Son of God the second person of the Trinity, the eternally existing creator 
and sustainer of everything that we see and touch. It is in him and in him alone that we have life, anything that is life. And Father, we desire that our lives would would declare his worth and display his glory and attract people to him in order that they may have forgiveness from sin and everlasting life together with the one who made them for himself. We lift up his name, the name of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.